Father, we are grateful to be in your house, in your presence. Lord, we pray that you will speak to each one of us individually today, Lord. Convict our hearts. Encourage us. Lord, just let us feel your presence here today. Pray that what takes place will glorify and honor you. We are so thankful to be a part of a church that is alive and thriving, and we know that we owe that all to you. We thank you for the 54 people this past year that accepted you as their Lord and Savior and were baptized. And Lord, we thank you for the two this week to start the year that did the same thing. Lord, bless this church. Bless this time together. And Lord, bless Phil as he presents your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Connor Murphy's story is a really good one. I heard it for the first time this past week. I've been intrigued by it. Here it is. When he was 29 years old, Connor was working as a stable hand at a racetrack. He didn't love his life. In fact, he would describe it this way. Every day he went to work and grabbed hold of a shovel, and he spent all day long with that shovel. You can try to figure out what the rest of his day meant and what that shovel was for. He really didn't want to be working in the stables. He wanted to be an owner of a stable. His goal was to own his own racehorses, to train them himself, and to race them. That's what Connor wanted more than anything else, but his current career path did not make that possible. So he decided to do something really bold. Now, I'm not advocating for his choice. I don't believe it's a good one, but it worked for him. Here's what Connor did. He looked in his wallet one day, saw that he had $75.00. He went to the window and he placed all $75 on five of his boss's horses. He was betting that each one of them would come in first that day. It's called an accumulator bet. If it works, the person wins big. If all five of those horses cross the finish line first, huge payoff. If one of them fails, maybe comes in second, the person who placed the bet gets nothing. Connor was watching the races throughout the course of the day. The first horse crossed the finish line first. Second horse crossed the finish line first. Third horse came in first. Fourth horse came in first. When the fifth race was ready to start, Connor was pretty nervous. Excited, but nervous. And he watched with all the anticipation you can imagine. And that horse crossed the finish line first. He went to the window and cashed in his $75 worth of tickets, and he went home with $1.5 million. That's how it paid off. Isn't that an incredible story? He went to Louisville, Kentucky, bought his own farm, and bought a few horses, started training them himself, and as far as I know, his horses are still racing. It all began right there. Dave and John Ferguson, who are Preachers out of Chicago, co-pastors who happen to be brothers, tell Connor's story. When they tell it, they say this along with it. Don't we all dream of something just like that? An experience that would change our life, a windfall that would completely turn our lives and our worlds upside down, that would allow us to realize all of our hopes, all of our dreams. The Ferguson brothers go on to say, of course we all dream that way, but we're also practical enough to know that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But I love that the Fergusons say that there is actually a bet that we can make that is a sure thing. 
It is a lock. And every one of us that's willing to make it will win big. Interestingly, they use the teachings of a mathematician named Blaise Pascal, who has been credited with one of the most brilliant minds in the history of Western civilization. Pascal would actually be one of those individuals who grew up knowing God but never walked closely with him until a middle-of-the-night experience changed everything for him. That experience was with God. And after it happened, Pascal had a passion, a fueled passion, to help other people in similar situations come to know the Lord, people that knew who God was but had never walked closely with Him. He began his pursuit of changing other people's lives through this newfound passion with the intellectual people that he socialized with all the time. And he used the idea of a wager, a bet, to get their attention. Take a look at what Pascal would say. Let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he is. Pascal had figured out all of the odds. He knew what it was to not believe in God. He knew what it was to now believe in the Lord. And he realized that the difference is really in the payoff. And so he encouraged everybody else to wager just like he did. You go all in in this relationship. What's the best that can happen? You gain everything. What's the worst that could happen? You lose nothing. That's a sure thing. That's a bet. That is the kind of thing that we want. It's a lock. You are going to gain everything because God backs that bet. He actually backs it with the blood of his son. God himself backs this bet with the cross of Jesus Christ. So it makes it a lock. It makes it something every one of us should long for. But for the people that have known the Lord and are now distant from him, it is still a struggle. It is a struggle to want to come back. It is a struggle to know if you can come back. It is a struggle because of all of the things that have permeated your heart and your mind to know if really the payoff is what it could be. But again, Pascal would say, if you lose, you lose nothing. But if you win, you win everything in this life and beyond. That's a sure thing. That's a great bet. I want you to see how the Lord backs this bet. We're going to go into the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. We started there last week with a study of two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Really, we are looking at Elisha's life. But from time to time in this study, we're going to have to jump back into Elijah's life. And this morning is one of those times. We have to set the table for everything else that we're going to see. So I want to do that in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Verse 2, now Ahaziah, let's stop there for just a second. There are two names there that we need to explore this morning to really understand what's happening here. Ahab was the most wicked king Israel had ever known. He reigned for 22 years and his reign was one of terror. He did horrible things. His wickedness caused him to do horrible things. 
Let me just show you what the Bible says about Ahab. You don't have to believe me. You can believe Scripture out of this. We're going to go to the book of 1 Kings. Keep your finger there in 2 Kings. Turn back one book to the book of 1 Kings. We are going to look at a lot of Scripture today, but keep coming back to 2 Kings. So go through all this with me. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That is not a great epitaph. He did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than any other king before him. Ahab was wicked. He was wicked to a fault. And God took him out. God always does. He may allow that reign to last for a while, in Ahab's case, 22 years, but at the end of it, God took him out. He died a tragic death. And then Ahaziah, according to 2 Kings chapter 1, took his place. Ahaziah was not much better than Ahab. Keep your finger there in 2 Kings chapter 1, but go with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For after the death of his father, they were his counselors to his undoing. So Ahaziah is on the exact same path as Ahab. He is doing all kinds of wicked in the sight of the Lord. He is not honoring God. He is not following God. He is a terrible terrible king. He only reigned two years, one in Jerusalem and one in Samaria. And then God takes him out. And I'll show you that to you in just a second. But here's how wicked he really was. Go with me to the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Told you we're going to skip around a lot in scripture, but I want you to see all this for yourself. Chapter 20 verse 35. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eleazar, the son of Dodavehu of Merasha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. He was so evil that God even dealt with the people that would enter a business dealing with him. 
Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, said, hey, let's, let's build some ships together and we will sail against Moab. And they did, on their own, they did. And God said, oh, no, you won't. And he brought the thunder against them and destroyed their ships before they ever got out of the harbor because Ahaziah was that wicked. God said, I don't want him going anywhere. His influence is not leaving this place. And Jehoshaphat, shame on you for trying to join together with him. It's a good reminder to be careful who we get into business with. This whole thing fell apart because God said, you are not equally yoked. So in 2 Kings chapter 1, we see that Ahab is gone and Ahaziah is the king and God has to deal with him too. Go back to that book with me, will you? 2 Kings chapter 1, we'll just pick up in verse 1 again. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. God shoved him off the roof. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So here's what's happening. Ahaziah has sent some of his chief men to go talk to the prophets of Baal in Ekron, outside the land of Israel. Because God dealt with them through Elijah, they didn't have any place in the Holy Land anymore. They were outside of Israel. So he's sending his men to Ekron to talk to the prophets of these false gods. God says to Elijah, you intercept them along the way. And you say to them, is it because there's no God here? Now that's tongue in cheek. God's saying, I'm here. I am Israel's God. Jehovah God was saying, I am right here in front of you. What are you doing talking to these foreign gods? Then he says through Elijah, Ahaziah will not get off his sickbed. He is going to die right there. Send word back to him. So Elijah does, sends that back with these messengers. And here's what happens. Verse 5. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. That's the way God does some things. So Ahaziah says, who is this? Oh, that's Elijah. I remember Elijah from Ahab's story. You guys go get him and bring him back here. He's going to face me. But he didn't just send one man or two men. He said, I want you to take 50 of the best men we have with you. He sent the captain, a, a political leader, a military leader. He sent him to face down Elisha on the top of the hill with 50 men behind him. Ahaziah was a bully and he was trying to bully Elisha. And don't you just love what Elisha said? Okay, you called me man of God. If I'm really a man of God, I'm on fire to come down from heaven and consume you. And boom, it did. 
and they're dead. So watch what happens. Verse 11. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. He did it again. Now all of us know the whole saying, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Ahaziah needs to pay attention. But do you think he does? No. Watch what happens. Verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Ahaziah died. God took him out. It's as simple as that. God took him out. He chose a wicked path and he was trying to keep Israel on the wicked path even after this time of Elijah. So God said, no, this is a new day. This is a fresh day. This is the opportunity to begin again. I will not allow this to happen. So he took him out. He got rid of Ahaziah. Israel sat on the brink of a brand new relationship with God, a restored relationship with God. And the Lord was taking out the people that stood in the way. He was also removing their safety net. Elijah. We studied Elijah's departure from this earth last week. We know that he left in a whirlwind, that God took him to heaven because Elijah had stood as a warning, a prophet who was continually calling them back to repentance. And God said, that time has passed. Now you're going to have to stand on your own. Thus enter Elisha. Elisha is a prophet who will bring blessing upon blessing to them, lesson after lesson that shows them how they can live with God if they will just have a restored relationship with Him. God backs His bet. He says, you can have everything. You can win big. And God backs His bet through this prophet and the miracles that He performs. I want to show you the first three of those miracles. They're quite dramatic. The first one has to do with God imparting power to Elisha. Elijah is gone. Everybody knew who he was. For 18 years, Elisha had traveled with him. But now it was Elisha's turn to be the man of God, and God had to give him authority. So he did it through a very unique miracle. We find it in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 14. Take a look at this. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. And there were 50 of the prophets of God standing there watching. Now, Elisha's very first miracle mirrors 
Elijah's very last miracle. Still in chapter 2, look at verse 8. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. This is a common miracle that God uses to impart authority. He did it with Moses. He did it with Joshua. He's done this with Elijah and now with Elisha. It is God's way of saying, this is my man. He can even part water. And like we already said, there were 50 of the prophets, the sons of the prophets, standing there watching. So they saw the passing of the baton. Now Elisha was God's man speaking on God's behalf, and he had the Spirit of the Lord resting on him. So from this point forward, it should just be easy sailing for Elisha to do everything that he needs to do, shouldn't it? But it's not. Even with those 50 men, it was a struggle. Look at this in chapter 2. Verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said the spirit of Elijah rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? These 50 men, even though they knew the Spirit of the Lord was resting on Elisha, thought, and I don't know how they could think this, that when God caught Elijah up in a whirlwind, Elijah might have fallen out of the whirlwind and landed on the top of a mountain or in the bottom of a valley. And they said, send us out. We will go search all over this land to find him. Just like a search and rescue team. Send us out and we'll look. And Elijah said, don't go. There's no point in going. Elisha said, this is, this is just wasted effort. Don't do it. Elijah is gone. But they stayed at it and hammered away and hammered away and hammered away on him until finally the Bible says Elisha was ashamed, but he was really going, oh my word, they're never going to stop. So he said, fine, go. Just Go. In God's will, we have his directed will and his permissive will. They weren't insulting God. God just said, go through Elisha, so go. Three days later, they came back and said, we can't find him. And don't you love the fact that Elisha got to say, I told you so. Why'd you go? So he had the authority of God resting on him. And these people couldn't believe it, even the people that were the closest to him. That was the first miracle. God imparted his power. He showed everybody that they could trust Elisha. The second miracle of Elisha has to do with God reestablishing covenant with people. He's in Jericho when this happens. Pick up with me in 2 Kings 2, verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now there is a lot that you have to explore in order to understand this. A little biblical test to set the stage for this. They were in what city? Say that a little louder. Say that with more conviction like you really believe what the Bible says. They were in... They were in Jericho. Now let's figure out why this water was so bad. It sat under a curse 
God placed that curse there through Joshua. Keep your finger where we're at, but let's go back to the Old Testament book of Joshua together. Chapter 6, verse 26. The Bible says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Jericho was the first city to fall when the children of Israel moved into the promised land. And after it fell, and it's a dramatic story that we looked at last year, after it fell, Joshua said, this place is cursed. And so is the man who would ever presume to rebuild it. For years it sat in ruins until a wicked king decided to rebuild it. Anybody want to venture a guess who that wicked king might have been? It was Ahab. Ahab decided to rebuild the city. Now, he didn't do it himself. He never picked up a hammer. He never cut any stone. He sent a man named Hiel to do it. And this is what happened. We're going to go to the book of 2 Kings again, or 1 Kings, actually. Chapter 16, verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. His two sons died. Hiel paid a huge price because of his unfaithfulness. Now, Ahab was ultimately responsible. He was the king, but Hiel was the one who was carrying it out, and he should have known better. And he paid a horrible, horrible price for going against the word of the Lord. He rebuilt the city. By the time we get to 2 Kings chapter 2, we know that the wall is intact. We know that the people are living there safely, but we know that the water is bad. They can't grow anything. Women are having miscarriages. People are dying and they're blaming it all on the water. The water is bad and they know it. So they say to Elisha, everything around us is good. You're here with us. You can see it, but we need water. So Elisha does the most unique thing. He says, bring me a bowl and put some salt in it. And he throws salt into their well. He throws salt into their water and the water is purified and it is made whole and healthy. What a a unique thing. In order to understand it, you must know this. The salt did nothing to purify the water. It was not the work of the salt that changed it. It was the work of God. But the salt was symbolic, highly symbolic. And every Jew in Jericho would have known this. You see, salt was symbolic of God's covenant with man. We know that from the Old Testament book of Numbers. If you want to turn there with me, you can see this. In fact, if you've taken a break from turning in your Bible, you turn to this passage. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. An everlasting covenant of salt of salt. God used that illustratively. Now here's the way it worked. Let's say that Dini and I are entering into an agreement together and we both have a packet of salt that we always have on our side because it was in effect a handshake. So I tell Dini, here's what I'm going to do. And Dini says, here's what I'm going to do. And we take salt out of our packet and we put it on a table together and we mix it up 
mine and his together. In essence, we're saying that there is no way that I can separate my salt from yours and you cannot separate your salt from mine. It is intermingled together. Well, the everlasting covenant of salt is one made just like that between us and God. God uses salt to illustrate the fact that we can never be separated from one another. When God says this is the way that it will be, it will be that way. So he establishes an everlasting covenant with them. And Elisha reminds them of the covenant when we get to Jericho by throwing salt into the water. They know that that is a sign of a covenant agreement with God. So he's saying, if you will follow the Lord from this point forward, it'll be healed. And it was. Salt is, is also symbolic of the purity of worship. And every Jew knew that. Let's go to the book of Leviticus together and you'll see this. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So when Elisha did what he did, it was this beautiful action sermon that they would have all understood. It was not the salt that purified the water. It was God who purified the water and called it back to a place of pure worship. Beautiful, pure worship. By the way, this well, Elisha's well, still exists in Jericho today. Jericho is an ugly, ugly place today. It's on the West Bank. It is under Palestinian control. When you go to the Holy Lands and you tour that area, when you go into Jericho, you go past Muslim checkpoints where there are armed guards standing there. And God help you if you're Jewish and look Jewish. They will deal with you at those checkpoints and it is not a good thing. Not at all. But God's protection is there for the Jews. Once you get past the checkpoint and inside the walls of the city of Jericho, one of the first places that they take you to is this well. And it is so important to them that it is actually inside a huge building and it is kept under lock and key because the water means everything. And that water is still pure today, so much so that the tour guides will tell you that you are free to, to kneel down and get a hold of a scoop of water and take a drink of it if you want to. That's how pure that water is is. Now, when we were there, they offered us the opportunity to take a drink out of the well, and I quickly thought to myself, this place is under Palestinian control, under Muslim control. I think I'll pass. And that was kind of tied to a bad decision with water in Mexico a number of years ago. Well, anyway, (laughs) so I passed on the whole experience. The point being, this water is still pure today. That's an amazing way that God backs his bet. You can go there and, and grab a cup of that water and drink it today. That was the second miracle Elisha performed. The third miracle brought a warning for the second miracle. Pure worship had been reestablished. The covenant relationship was solid and strong between the Jews now in Israel because Ahaziah was gone and Elisha was saying, you have an everlasting covenant of salt. So then he brought a warning, and it is a good one. This is my favorite miracle in all of the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. He went up from there to Bethel. Now let's stop there for just a second. Bethel, if you're going to say it the right way, is actually Bethel. It comes in two syllables. Its meaning is house of God. When Elisha got there, Bethel was not the house of God. It was not a place of worship. It was the center for idol worship. So when he got there, wickedness ran rampant. Here's what happened. 
And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him. Now let's stop there again. My Bible says small boys, but the actual translation says that these young men were somewhere between the ages of 12 and 30. They were not little playful children that were just running around the streets. They knew what they were doing. They had the ability to determine right from wrong, and they knew that there were consequences for their actions. Do not feel bad for what you're about to see here. This is not just children paying the price. Here we go. They came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Isn't that great? I love that story. Favorite miracle in all of the Bible. When they came out and said, go on up, you bald head, the go on up part was their way of saying, If you are as godly as Elijah, Elijah was taken out of here by God, and we're happy he's gone, so why don't you go too? Go on up. Get out of here. We don't want you around here. We heard what you did in Jericho. Please don't do that in Bethel. Get out of here, and we will celebrate when you do. And they added to it their own form of an insult by calling him a bald head. How that's insulting, I can't imagine. Go on up, you bald head. Well, for the Jewish people... The Bible would teach that gray hair is a crown of glory. And many of the people believe that if gray hair was the crown of glory, baldness was a sign of disgrace. I think maybe God just set the record straight. He really did. So you got Elisha who doesn't have that crown of glory, but instead has a righteous holy head visible for everyone to see. We'll just, we'll just let that stand for a bit. Two she-bears come out of the woods and 42 of these boys, young men, young adults, were mauled. They were not killed. They were mauled. There has to be a reason for that. More than likely, it's their scars. For the rest of their lives, as they walked around Bethel and everywhere else, those scars would be visible. As you know, when the Bible says that those bears tore those boys, they were ravaged. Those scars would exist the rest of their lives. They would have to. The scars would be a reminder of what it means to mock the Lord. Paul would grab that idea in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 7, when he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Don't mock God. When there is a covenant of salt in place, you don't mock God. So the question is, and it's a good one, what do we do with this passage, with these miracles If Elisha is giving a call to repentance and a return to relationship with God, what what do we learn from these? What do we do with them? Well, it takes us back to that idea of a bet, a wager, understanding that if we bet everything on God, the payoff will be amazing, and we stand to lose nothing. If we're willing to get into that type of a relationship, then we can experience everything that God has for us. The payoff will be huge. It will be huge. All we have to do is bet, put it all on the line, all $75 in your wallet, put it all on the line and trust that God will back the bet. And when he does, when he does, the relationship will be outstanding. One of the things that we see in the second miracle, and we didn't call this out a few minutes ago, is really important for us to catch. 
when Elisha was in Jericho and he said, bring me a bowl and salt, and he purified the water, he didn't just ask for a bowl of salt. He asked for a new bowl with salt in it. That new bowl was very symbolic. It showed them a new start. He didn't just say, bring me a bowl of salt or a bag of salt. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And from there, he pulled the salt out and he purified the water. The new bowl mattered. It mattered huge. Because you see, that new bowl showed them, in essence, what we would call a redo button or a refresh button. Or it showed them that they had the opportunity to restart something. The new bowl matters. And it does for us as well. Sometimes when we have been distant from the Lord and we look at our brokenness and we recognize that a lot of that distance exists because of choices that we have made, we need a new bowl full of salt. That new bowl allows us to push the button and begin again with God. And that's what repentance and redemption is all about. It's a matter of pushing the button and starting over, having a fresh beginning. And it doesn't matter what application you put that in. For some people, if you have been distant from the Lord for a long time and you want to come back, you need a new bowl. You need the opportunity to push the button and begin again. Or maybe in your marriage, things have been broken for years and you need them to be changed. You need a new bowl full of salt. You've done it your way and now you want to do it God's way. When you have a new bowl of salt in front of you, you're saying, I'm choosing a new path. I'm choosing God's path. Or maybe it's at work that you wrestle with this and you realize that you are a different person at work than you are at home or at church and and you don't want to be that way. When you have a new bowl sitting in front of you and you apply it to your work situation, you may discover that you have to make many changes and you might even discover that you have to change jobs because it's impossible for you to honor God where you are at. But the new bowl allows you to see that and the salt within it allows you to purify everything from this day forward. The new bowl matters. Or maybe there's other brokenness in your life that you need to address and you need a new bowl to help with it. A new beginning, a fresh start where you purify the things of the past so that you can move into the future with God, doing it God's way and giving up on your way. That's what that new bowl was all about. There is a lot for us to learn from those miracles, including the fact that we need to not mock God. When God says, do it this way, do it this way. Don't choose to do a little bit of what God says and a lot of what you think. Do it God's way. And that's how you stay connected to Him. And that's how the bet pays off. That's how you win. That's where the wager comes through for you. Do it God's way. Give up yours. The new bowl shows us how. Fill it with salt and get started. And trust that it isn't the salt that matters, it's the God that's behind the salt. That's what matters. And if you have that everlasting covenant with Him, you can experience it. I want to leave you with a caution real quick. We come across passages like this in 2 Kings chapter 2 where 42 young men get mauled by bears. And we always end up thinking, why would God do it that way? That just doesn't seem right. We put God on the stand and we take him to trial believing that God should have done something differently than he did. Well, let me just share with you that in those moments when you come across passages like this or if you're reading in the book of Genesis and you see Abraham told by God to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him, don't put God on the stand. 
Don't try to dissect what God is doing, but let what God is doing dissect you. Let it penetrate your heart so that you can look not at his character, but yours and determine what it is that God wants for you. Passages like this need to dissect us so that we can see what God has in store for us. There's power in that. There is great power in that. There is relationship. Wager everything on it with a new bowl in hand and see what God can do.